Today is the conclusion of the series that we've been walking through over the course of the summer that we've titled Guard Your Heart. And a quick rewind, if you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We've been studying this particular vision or idea that comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where the author of Proverbs tells us there, above all else, guard your heart, for from it, from the heart, flows all of life. And so we talked about in week one how the heart and the kind of the emotional health, the capacity of our souls at that level directs the course that our life will take. And how we, uh, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus in, into discipleship, into becoming like him and being formed into his image and likeness, that ultimately begins at the level of, of the emotional maturity of the follower of Jesus. Or as we said in week one, it's impossible to grow spiritually and re- remain emotionally immature. We, we have to guard the heart. The heart is where many of the wars and battles of the Christian life are fought. And so as we walk that out, uh, walk that out over subsequent weeks, we've looked at a various uh, measure of text that, that kind of point to or direct this idea for us. We, we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes where there Solomon writes and tells us that uh, we, we have to embrace the season that we find ourselves in. We have to lean into it because for every matter under heaven, there is a season, a time to laugh and, and a time to mourn, a, a time to live and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. All of that is the way the Lord has ordered the cosmos and all of his creation. And so we find ourselves sometimes in difficult, challenging seasons, seasons that are marked by sorrow or, or loss or frustration or angst. And in those moments, those are times where if we're not careful, we've got to watch and guard our hearts as well. Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 3 that the main gift in all of this is that God is with us and that he wants us to pursue joy and to enjoy the things that he's provided for us. And so we have a freedom then to experience joy in the midst even of sorrow and hardship. In the past couple of weeks, we looked at the idea of disappointment in the life of Elijah, the prophet, who went from the highest of highs of doing exactly what God had told him to do and seeing the ways that God showed up in his ministry and in his life to utter despair and just a few short verses and a few sequence of events that led him to that. How do we wind up despairing? What does it look like to, to settle into discouragement? How do we guard our hearts against that as well? That, last week, we looked at the life of Moses in this one specific episode where Moses is, is rebuked by his father-in-law and called by his father-in-law to establish and empower other leaders to embrace his own limitations Because if we're not careful, if we don't embrace limitations, if we try to pretend that we are all-knowing or all-present, which are attributes given only to the Lord himself, we may find ourselves, as Jethro said in our text last week, breaking up and falling apart. And so today I want to kind of put a bow on this entire series by looking at a very specific uh, quality or attribute of the heart, an emotion, if you will, that kind of rises from the heart and one that is perhaps in an ever-increasing fashion showing up in our lives. That's the issue of anxiety. It's addressed multiple times in the scriptures, most notably in the New Testament by Jesus and by Paul, as we'll see in just a moment. What do we do with our anxious wandering? What do we do with the the, the fears or the compulsions that seem to grip our hearts and take us in an unhealthy direction or lead us astray from the things that we value the most? Paul tells us here in Philippians chapter 4 as he's closing out this letter to the church at Philippi, a church that was probably beset with all sorts of anxieties given the world they were living in. He gives them some very clear and specific directions about how to address that and what to do with it. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. So let's talk about anxiety. Some of y'all, you hear me say that, and you're like, ah, that makes me anxious. I don't want to talk about anxiety because it makes me feel anxiety. Uh, This is something that uh, probably even a year ago I would have felt massively ill-equipped to address or talk about. It was something that I was maybe even in increasing fashion experiencing in my own life. And so I decided I'm going to go to school literally on this particular subject. And so about a year ago, I enrolled at University of Rutgers out of New Jersey in a group that studies family systems theory. So before we jump into our text this morning, I want to give you a little primer on this idea of anxiety from a bit of a a theoretical, psychological perspective. And then we'll see what the scripture has to say about that. Uh, The issue of anxiety is kind of, I think, an increasing one in our culture, and part of that is due to large part because of what we see happening in society and in culture, but also even the advance of technologies that are meant to peak our anxieties and increase them without even us having a conscious awareness of that. So when we talk about anxiety, what are we talking about? Is Is it just a feeling? Is it a state of mind? Is it something that applies to the soul? And how does a Christian specifically navigate a increasingly anxious world. Well, on the topic of anxiety in my particular field of study in family systems theory, it puts anxiety into one of two categories, acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. So let me break those down for you real quick. Acute anxiety is a neurological, physiological phenomenon that's given to human beings, to those who are inclined of the evolutionary idea, which I am not. I'm a creationist. Uh, They believe that it's something that we've evolved in to adapt. I believe we were designed by God to feel anxiety because in many ways it helps us survive really hostile and hard situations. For instance, acute anxiety works like this. If you see a threat, if you acknowledge a, a threatening scenario or situation, neurological and physiological phenomenon begin to take place in your body, right? So acute anxiety is whenever your brain senses a threat of a giant boa constrictor kind of dropped from the ceiling. Lord willing, you would feel something, and it would be a good thing that you feel that. Get away, run away. What happens is your amygdala fires. It's part of the brain that lights up whenever there's something threatening around. And then it causes neuroepinephrine to release in your brain, which causes your adrenal gland to fire, which makes your pupils dial and your heart rate increase. All right, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's when you're in a near car wreck or you see some animal that's threatening or you just find yourself in a really difficult situation and you have that fight, flight, or freeze scenario take place in your own soul. That's acute anxiety. It comes on very quick and it recedes even quicker. Now, for some who find themselves stuck in that role, you know, sometimes related to trauma or some past conflict that seems to be running in the backs of their minds always, that that can be a real particular predicament that you got to work with and talk to a mental health professional. That's not the type of anxiety we're talking about this morning, though. The type of anxiety we're talking about this morning, what I think the scripture references when it talks about anxiety, is what we would call chronic anxiety. And chronic anxiety is the the ability that human beings alone have to look into the future because we're in a place and time and to speculate about what could perhaps happen, go wrong, turn sideways, 
go us under. And so we begin to imagine threats that probably aren't even really there. They may be assumed, or uh, maybe there's some logical consequence where you can tie those things together, but you, we can make ourselves anxious about things that have yet to happen that may not even come to pass. Chronic anxiety begins to take place in the body whenever we talk about things like stress, and our cortisol begins to increase, a hormone in our bodies that weighs us down literally over time if we don't address it or deal with it. And I believe that this is the form of anxiety that the Bible's talking about, specifically whenever we look at places like in, we'll see in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus commands us to not be anxious, where Paul here commands us in Philippians 4, do not be anxious. He's not talking about that physiological phenomenon that you really have zero control over. Again, I could throw a giant snake or release a grizzly bear in the room, and we would all hopefully experience that. If you don't, you may want to see a professional about that. If you're like Steve Irwin and you want to go hug the big teddy bear, that's a problem. Like You're going to get yourself in some real danger. But most of us would have that physiological response, and, and that's not simply what the Scripture is commanding us against. What it's talking about is the mere speculation of the imagined threat that may or may not even come to pass. So that's a quick primer. Maybe that makes sense to you this morning because maybe you're a person who finds yourself perhaps on the treadmill of speculating about things, of wondering and worrying about the future or considering all the things that could go wrong, looking for ever, every dark cloud behind whatever silver, silver lining you're experiencing. And that's exactly what we want to talk about when we're talking about guarding the heart. There are four things that I think that Paul talks about here in Philippians 4, four, four ways of seeing the world, ways of operating in the world, ways of following Jesus that I believe if we can just begin to apply these four simple things, we can actually begin to see some of the chronic anxiety in our lives be reduced. Spiritual disciplines and practices that are designed by God to deal with this very real issue of our hearts. And we're meant to be liberated by the hope of the gospel, set free by the person of Jesus, and following him into the world in many respects, free from the chronic anxiety that plagues the society around us. How do we do that? Well, the first thing that we see, I think, in verses 4 and 5 is that Paul tells the church in Philippi that before you can even obey the command, do not be anxious about anything, there's a posture towards the world, towards God, and towards one another that we need to assume a posture, a way of orienting ourselves in the world that will, I think, ultimately begin to address the anxiety that's residual within all of our hearts. Go back in verse 4, and let me show you what I mean. There it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Uh, Paul begins this with a command to rejoice, and he emphasizes it by saying it twice. And, and perhaps if you're reading from a different translation this morning, there's a more accurate word. The word celebrate is used there. Celebrate. In the Lord, always, again, I say celebrate. And I think that what Paul is telling the church there is that celebration as the people of God, under the banner of King Jesus, under the gift of his good grace and kindness towards us, had this unique ability to always be a celebratory people. It's why so often what we do on Sunday mornings as we gather the people, as the people of God, we celebrate the good news we have received. We celebrate the fact that Jesus lived our life and died our death and rose again victorious over, over the grave. We celebrate those things because celebration has the capacity built up within it to recalibrate the heart. If we go about rejoicing, if we practice the discipline of celebration, God can actually use that to change and attune our hearts away from the, the pathway of chronic anxiety. In Paul's day, when he's writing these instructions to the church in Philippi, the world around them, the world in Ephesus, the world in Philippi, the world in Corinth, all, all over that, the known world at that time, there, there was festivals and celebrations that were organized to celebrate the, the, the little g gods of that particular region or culture. 
And the reason that the people would hold these celebrations was because uh, anxiety was a way of life for people in the pagan world, just as it was in our world today. Because they were an anxious people, because there's so many gods and goddesses, you don't know when you're going to offend one for something that you didn't even know was wrong. And so you had to have these celebrations to appease those gods, to curry their favor, or perhaps to placate them in some way so that you could go on about your life without having to fret or be anxious about the fact that the gods may spite you because you haven't done the right thing. You never knew whether something bad was waiting for you around the corner. So you celebrate these gods in due season so that the god will go along with his or her own business and leave you to yourself. Now, Paul is calling on the church to embrace this way of celebration Because we deal differently with God than the pagan world does. We don't celebrate to appease God. We celebrate because Jesus has laid down his life for us. And we don't have to worry about the threat of God's punishment coming upon us if we're followers of Jesus. Which is why we continuously can be set in the mode of celebration. We can always be dancing, as it were, because of what Christ has done for us. In Christianity, God doesn't need to be appeased in the way that he was in the pagan world because Jesus laid down his life. His blood was shed on our behalf so that in him we can celebrate. One of the things in the field of study I've been looking at over the past year, in particular to the one that I've been studying in family systems theory, it talks about the fact that playfulness and anxiety cannot coexist. That if we can entertain the idea that perhaps we can be having fun, if we can entertain the idea that perhaps there's something worth celebrating, it chases away anxiety. So I don't think Paul's command here is archaic. I think it's very relevant for for a day like ours today where you turn on the news and you are going to be told about all the things you should be worried about, all the compulsive, anxious uh, wanderings you should let ruminate in your heart because you never know when one of those threats are going to come knocking on your door. Paul says, no, the people of God rejoice. I say it again, celebrate because of who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and let that recalibrate your heart. Secondly, I think the posture that he's calling them to assume is is one of how they relate to to each other and to the world around them. Look back at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word for reasonableness can be translated your gentleness, your kindness, your, your ability to be considerate of others, your tolerance. That's how it's translated in some other translations. In other words, Paul is telling the church that relational receptivity reduces their anxiety. Let your reasonableness be known to all. In other words, assume a posture towards the other that does not assume the worst about them or treat them as a perpetual potential threat and see what that does to your anxiety. If you can look out at the world and stay curious with it, not judgmental of it, If you open yourselves up to others rather than writing them off as a threat or dismissing them as one of those people, maybe that does something to your own soul and your own heart. Maybe we could stop putting people in groups that have labels and those labels which we get to immediately dismiss because after all, they're not like us. And instead, we can be reasonable towards towards the world, gentle and kind towards the world in some way. Perhaps it has something to do with our own souls. You see, if everyone in your eyes is a potential threat, if everyone is a, is a wolf in sheep's clothing of some sort or secretly a part of that bad group, then you've got to stay locked in a state of chronic anxiety because they're always out to get you. And you never know when they may be hiding around the corner. So much of what happens on our cell phones and on our television sets these days is just a constant state of warning, a constant alarm going off, like Peter crying wolf. Man, this is, this is the day it's all going to go down. You better be ready for it or else. I mean, think of it. 
Saturdays at noon, the tornado sirens get tested. If those things go off all the time, you're going to begin to wonder, something's wrong. And yet we live in a world where the sirens are always sounding. So Paul says, what if we let our reasonableness be known to the world? What if we let our gentleness and our kindness be known to the world? What if we didn't see everything as a potential threat and instead assumed a posture that God is sovereign and in control and we don't got to fight everybody? What if that were to happen? So before we move on, I just want to encourage you sometime this week, perhaps even, take some steps. Find something to celebrate. When you feel your anxiety creeping up, look at the ways that God has been good to you and kind to you. Look at the, look at the ways favor is shown upon you, upon you. Look at the blessings that you have in your life, because I believe that celebration and anxiety can't coexist. Not only that, look at, look at your, the way that God has placed you around people. Open yourself up to someone, maybe even someone you have strong disagreements with, and see, maybe they're just a human being just like you. Real thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Maybe they're in the gridlock of anxiety, and maybe you're opening up yourself to them will cause their anxiety to lessen. Who knows what the Lord would do with that? The way that we fight anxiety in our life is we, we have a particular, a particular posture, we assume. Then Paul also says there's a pattern that, for our prayers that deals with anxiety. The way that we pray has a pattern to it that I think deals with our anxiety as well. Look back again at verse 6. There, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. There's the command, but the response to that, but is in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, okay, don't be anxious about anything. Don't, don't spin on the residual you know, threats and worries that consume the heart, but instead pray about everything. And I love the way that he says that. Essentially, he says, bring everything to God. In everything, let your prayers and your supplications be known to God. And the word for supplication there is the word that's translated beg elsewhere in the New Testament. Same word used of a person stuck in poverty who's begging Jesus to heal them or begging someone for money. Paul says here, if you don't want to be anxious, go beg God for things because he loves to hear those things. That the posture that we have towards the world may look like this, but the posture that we have towards God is bring everything to him. In everything, let your requests be known to God. What if the multitude of small things that unnerve you throughout the day could be seen as opportunities to engage and commune with God in prayer? What if instead of ruminating on all the ways that this could go sideways and your life could fall apart and be wrecked in an instant, what if instead those were pathways or on-ramps to communion with God himself? In everything, let your requests be known. Let your supplications be known. And then, then at the end of that, Paul tags it in a very specific way. He says, do it with thankfulness. It's similar to the way Peter talks about the very same thing. Peter brings up anxiety in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he's telling a church that's under threat of persecution where the authorities are always bearing down on them, perhaps threatening to take their very lives. And he gives them some, some counsel that sounds very similar to what Paul says here. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, I think those two things go hand in hand. Humbling yourself and then bringing all of your supplications, all of your prayers, and all of your anxieties before God. Why do those two things go hand in hand? Because the reason that you're chronically anxious is because you believe you have more power and more control over the cosmos than you do. And we've talked about this throughout this series. It's why we've got to embrace our limitations. We've got to bring ourselves down a few rungs on the ladder of exaltation because we don't have the power to make the world work the way that we think that we do. 
That's why we're anxious. And so Peter says to the, to the church there, persecuted church, what if instead of exalting yourself, thinking you can take on all the bad people and win, or realizing you have no chance in the fight and staying stuck in a, stuck in a state of constant fear and anxiety, what if instead you brought all those things to God who is in control primarily because you realize he cares for you? The pattern of our prayers is a pattern of people who come before the Lord with all of their anxieties, all of their, their, their fears, all of their doubts, all of their regrets, all of the stuff that weighs them down, and they cast them upon God because he listens and because he cares. And don't forget gratitude. That's what Paul tags that with. Do all these things, but do it with thankfulness when you pray. Why? Because my hypothesis is, is that if we live a life, if we have a prayer life that is filled with thanksgiving, we will lead a less anxious life. We just will. If the majority of my prayers are consumed with me expressing to God the gratitude and thankfulness I have for all that he has blessed me with and all that he has provided me with, I'm going to have a really hard time thinking about all the things that are wrong. Now, I have a limited amount of mental capacity, and if I ruminate and, and ponder and meditate upon God's faithfulness to me, if, if I learn to celebrate that, if I learn to, to pray that before the Lord, it will, I believe, it has to repel the anxiety of my heart. Because I believe gratitude and anxiety have a hard time finding space in the same heart. Third, Paul gives us, I believe, not just a pattern for our prayers, but a set of practices that we're called to engage that that causes anxiety to recede in our hearts as well. That's what happens down in verse 8 when he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think upon these things. He gives them a, a list of of, of, of ideas that they can ponder in their own minds. He's calling them to meditation. He says again, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything that is excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The command here is to use our brains to consider the blessings, the goodness, the kindness, the justice of God so that it causes the anxiety of our hearts to recede, to meditate upon the goodness of God. We just sang about it a minute ago. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. How specifically? And as you meditate upon that, the Lord causes anxiety to to escape from our hearts. I I like the way that N.T. Wright talks about this in comparison to the popular media craze of our days. And his commentary on this, he says, The command in verse 8 It's to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here. And it runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media, or I would say by social media. Read the newspapers or watch cable news, whichever one you want to do. Their stock in trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and celebrate? What's consuming your mind? And can you connect the dots that perhaps what's consuming your mind is also what's making you chronically anxious? If you have... um, you have a, a phone that's been made in the last probably 10 years, I assume this is the case. I think it is on mine. Uh, occasionally, your storage gets full, right? Have you experienced that? 
and you go to like your, your settings and you look and your phone will tell you like, here's what's eating up all your storage. Like I tell my wife all the time, she's like, my storage is full. I'm like, yeah, you take pictures of everything. It's all pictures. You have like 27 gigabytes of pictures and sometimes it's 17 pictures of the same thing. You know, just delete a few things, see what happens. If you could do the same thing with your brain, what's eating up your mental capacity? And if you are feasting on popular media of whatever sort, whatever, whichever one you prefer, I'm going to guess that your thoughts are going to be consumed with what's wrong in the world. And then I would just say, I'm not a prophet. I, I'm, I'm not a, you know, a fortune teller of any sort. But I'm going to guess the more of that you consume, the less you're going to think about what is honorable, lovely, commendable, praiseworthy, excellent, and which is beautiful in the world. And in so doing... You're going to see your anxiety rise and your gratitude decrease. That's why Paul is saying, no, let me summon you out of that path and that pattern. Let me instead call you to think about other things, to meditate upon the goodness of God and the ways he's shown himself in the world, to be consumed with the right things. Otherwise, how could you be anything other than anxious? Do you subsume yourself into the conflicts of all that's going on in creation and wonder about them and ponder them and consider them continuously? probably going to be a pretty anxious person. That's the way it works. And those imagined threats that are hiding behind every corner, you're going to be given new things to think up and conjure up that you never even knew existed had you not spent time watching that, reading that, or going down that wormhole. That's why I think when Jesus talks about anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, he, he tells his followers, his disciples, in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to look and to consider we talked about this when we preached through the book of, of Matthew. I don't think it's accidental that Jesus says, okay, don't be, don't be worried or anxious about anything, but instead consider the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. It's, it's not figurative. I genuinely think he wants you to go look at the flowers in the field and genuinely look up at the birds in the sky. Why? Because you've got to escape from your internal monologue about all that's bad and broken and wrong. Otherwise, you will end up worried and anxious. This is how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Jesus, those words, those two words that are used there are not words like glance at them. They are words that are meant to, to show intent. Study them intently consider them, ponder those things, meditate upon them. In other words, I think Jesus is essentially saying, hey, get a hobby. And don't let your hobby be watching the news. Don't let it be staring at your bank account. Don't let it be looking about what's happening in the market. Get a hobby and ponder those things. Consider those things. Meditate upon those things. You'll escape the vicious cycle of anxiety if you do so. Look, I'm going to be honest with you all. Whenever I cook, I'm not thinking about what's wrong with the world. I'm thinking about how awesome it is that I just diced this onion and it made me cry. What, what's going on there? How cool is it that garlic's going to smell up my whole house in a minute when I throw it in hot olive oil? Like, that's a, that's a gift. Whenever, I, whenever I'm fishing and something gets on the other end of my line and my pole bends over, I'm not thinking about anything but what's about to come up. And how awesome is this experience going to be? And I don't think that's accidental. I think we were designed by God to have a hobby to do something that elicits within us some, some, some break from the, the concerns and the anxieties of the world around us. It's how you guard your heart. 
And we can't be perpetually inundated with all of these crazy, chaotic things in the world. We weren't built for that. God alone can handle that. Jesus says, go look at the flowers. It's not a waste of time. Go look at birds. You know, there's a meme going around that says you live your whole life completely indifferent to the birds around you. And then one day, you're staring out your back window, and you're like, oh, look, a red-tailed hawk. And I'm like, yes, that's me. I literally said those words a few weeks ago with my wife. We're drinking coffee. I'm like, look, a red-tailed hawk. I'm so excited about it. What is that? That's get in touch with nature and get in touch with something that could perhaps be good for the soul. Secondly, Paul says, the practice that we commit to is not just meditation. It's also imitation. So he, he gives this laundry list of things in verse 8 and says, whatever's true, whatever's just, honorable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about those things. But then he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I think that this is a really important instruction that he gives the people of God, because it's, it's assuming something. It's assuming that there's a person who can model for you what it looks like to live a less anxious existence. It's assuming that there's a person God has put in your path who's experiencing the peace of God in real time, and you can look at them and say, I don't know what they got going on, but I need to learn more about that. I don't know what, what about the rhythms and the habits and the attributes of the way they live their life, but they experience peace at a level that I may not, and I'm going to imitate that. So Paul says, look, you've seen it in me. You've heard it from me. I've taught you these things. You've witnessed me doing these things. You do the same things. So I think it behooves us to ask the question, who do you know that seems to be living a life that looks freer from anxiety than perhaps yours life, your life is? Spend time with them. And as we talked about last week, ask them for help. Hey, what could I do to kind of get off this treadmill? Where do I need to grow? What's, what do you see in me that's leading me down this particular path that maybe perhaps you found some escape from? Because I look at your life and there's flourishing there that I'm not experiencing. I want to learn how to be better in this area of my heart and my life. What does it look like for me to be less anxious and live in the way that you're living? One of my favorite thinkers on this subject was a, a psychologist named Ed Friedman who wrote a book several years ago called Failure of Nerve. And in it he says the single, single greatest attribute of leadership is not courage, it's not intelligence, it's not their uh, giftedness or their aptitude. single greatest attribute of a leader is a non-anxious presence. That when everything begins to come down collapsing, they go, okay, take a deep breath. It's going to be all right. Here's what we're going to do. That's what Paul says. I was in your presence. The ever-present threat of persecution was all around us. And I'm able to say, take a deep breath, y'all. Consider how good God has been to us. Let's pray in these ways. And if there's anything else you've seen in my life that could lead you to be less anxious, put that into practice. So that's it, y'all. That's the three things, but we're not done because we got four points today. Not only are we a people who assume a certain posture in the world to deal with our anxiety, a people who have a pattern for the way we pray, not only are there a set of practices that we, we, that we put into motion in order to make us less anxious, the good news of the gospel is buried in verse 7. It's screaming at us. There's a promise that we get to cling to in all of this. Look back at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's the good news. See, we've been going through this series with this idea of guarding your heart, and I've got really good news for you this morning. God guards your heart. 
He's the one, by his very spirit dwelling within you, who points out to you, hey, you're anxious about something that may or may not come to pass. Reconsider these truths. The spirit comes along and says, hey, you're worried about something that's really probably not that big of a deal. Pray in this way. Not only that, not only does God guard our hearts, but God gives you peace. And he says it's not just peace that's like, you know, the peace that comes from, you know, eating a good meal or catching a big fish in my case. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that says, I shouldn't be this peaceful given all that's going on in the world, but by the grace of God, I am. And that's what's on offer for us today. And so if you came in today and you're crippled by chronic anxiety, I have good news for you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. Prayer and supplication and thankfulness, make your requests known to God because he cares for you, as Peter said. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God, would we experience that today? Would we, as your people, know that our hearts are protected, that our minds are protected, because Jesus got out of the grave, and we don't have to worry about where this world is headed. We already know. One day, the fullness and finality of a restored cosmos, of a new heaven and a new earth, where there's no more weeping, mourning, crying, or pain. That's where we're headed to a feast that doesn't end and a celebration that's unceasing because we'll be with you forever. And so, God, I pray that the peace of that truth would permeate our hearts today such that our anxiety would be lessened and we could be a people who celebrate. We could be a people who let our reasonableness be known to the world. We could be people who are open and receptive. God, in so doing, would you begin to change the world for the good by the fact that we're a less anxious people by the fact that you're in our midst, proving yourself to be the God of all peace by the way you're changing and shaping our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.